Welcome to Dragon Babies. Yay. I'm Grace. I'm Madeline. And this week, our book is The Last Unicorn by Peter S. Beagle, released mm-hmm. in 1968, Yeah. when the author was the same age that I am now, which is really uh, both inspirational and embarrassing. Grace is grimacing. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll do a quick little summary for those who haven't read the book or have potentially seen the movie but never read the book, which I think is a pretty I have never seen the movie. Pretty large group of people. There is a unicorn living in a wood. She hasn't seen another unicorn for a very, very long time. She decides that she has to figure out what happened to the others of her kind and she leaves her wood and goes on an adventure to try to find them. Mm-hmm. She is very quickly captured by a witch who runs a sideshow of mythical and magical creatures. From there, she escapes with a magician named Schmendrick, who was also a part of the sideshow. And they travel throughout the land after they learn of a mythical-sounding red bull that supposedly has something to do with the missing unicorns, they pursue the Red Bull. Mm -hmm. Along the way, they also meet up with a woman named Molly Grew, who is from a band of criminals who fancy themselves to be Robin Hood and his men, but are just depressing lesser versions of actual storybook characters. And along the way as well, um, at first, Schmendrick seems like a pretty intriguing but sad character, and you he continues to be a sad character, but you learn that he actually is supposed to be getting some pretty intense magical powers. At the beginning, he has just, like, just tricks. Um, there's two occasions where he actually exhibits this kind of magic where he has access to it, but he's working towards that. It is a curse. He yeah. is cursed. Mm-hmm. Um, he has been cursed to be immortal until he discovers his actual capability. Mm-hmm. Like he is a bad magician, yeah. a bad sorcerer. He, he mucks it up a lot. He can't do what he intends to do. And then he sometimes has these moments when incredible power flows through him, but he has no control over it or mm-hmm. what happens. Yeah. And that usually only comes out in the direst of moments. And it doesn't always have the best consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does lead to two of the most striking moments in the book, yes. um, which I think we'll, we'll cover in a little bit. So we'll say that in the end, the unicorn defeats the Red Bull defeats is a strange word to use because the unicorn essentially overpowers the Red Bull, but the Red Bull doesn't fight. The Red Bull just herds. Mm -hmm. Um, He's trying to keep all the unicorns in the sea, which is where they have been chased because King Haggard, who commands the Red Bull, is incredibly depressed and has nothing in his life except unicorns and the the sight of them trapped under his own power brings him happiness. This book is extremely different from the other books we've done. Yeah, Um, There's a lot to discuss. Um, It's very layered and subtle. Um, So we'll try to keep things uh, in, you know, compact (laughs) segments and not ramble too much. But I mean, it's going to be, like, pretty (laughs) twisty. and Yes, I mean, because reading this... You know, we'll, we'll talk about this as a young adult book in a little bit, but reading it as an adult, I found some passages challenging. Yes, um, and I've actually never read this book before. All the books that we've done before <laughs> this have been from our childhood, and we're revisiting. Right. Um, I thought that I had read it, but as soon as I got to the first, the end of the first page, I was like, hmm, no, I have never, ever read this book before. Well, that's a good place to start. We can talk about our personal histories. Um, which you just said is (laughs) nothing. Uh, I did read this book as a child um, because it was one of those fantasy classics. Mm -hmm. Um, It's much older than the other books that we've covered um, by at least 20 years. 
and there are some specific things that this book ushered in that weren't being done with fantasy at the time that we'll talk about but I will say that as a child it was I've I read this a few times it was difficult to read um I don't think I understood it mm-hmm. I don't think I was ready to grapple with the concepts of um mutable time and death and immortality and, and pain and um, because like of personal death. trauma yeah uh, yeah it's there are really really mature themes mm-hmm. in this book and I think it's been viewed as a young adult book because of the film I feel like that made it seem more appropriate for younger peoples. Well, and if you just look at the, we'll post a picture of the edition that we have, but it Mm -hmm. looks like a young adult book. It looks, if you don't know what it is, it looks like it could be um, very soft and, you know, kind of just a a run of the mill. Like it's got a, a beautiful picture of a unicorn on the front and it just says the last unicorn. It looks like a classical painting of a unicorn yes, a little bit. Yeah. I think there is a tendency to infantilize fantasy to begin with. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. People think, uh, and I mean, you made this point when we were casually talking about this the other day that because it's a book about unicorns, right? That's I think that's what about I'm a single to unicorn. Say, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's harder to view that as something serious or mm-hmm. grown up. Um, but all that said, I'm so happy that we did decide to cover this book. Uh, mm-hmm. We decided because Madeline thought it was a different book and she chose it from our, yeah. <laughs> from our selection. I thought it was uh, a, a fairly kind of soft, like pretty uh, fairy tale. I'm really curious to figure out what unicorn book you were thinking of, but we'll... we'll Maybe it's no book at all. <laughs> it might just be a long lost dream. Yeah. Well, we were on the topic of relationships to mm-hmm. the book. Mm-hmm. So what you said it was hard for you to read. Yes, and I viewed it as something kind of dark and frightening. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually was a little scared starting it, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. especially because I think that the most frightening part of the book, other than the unicorn being turned into a woman, which basically plays out like physical assault, mm-hmm. um, is when the unicorn is captured and locked in a cage mm-hmm. for the sideshow, yeah. which takes place in the first 20 pages of the book. I mean, it's it's very fast. Mm-hmm. Um, the pacing of the book as, as a whole is kind of strange, and mm-hmm. I think it's related to the unicorn's um, perception of time mm-hmm. because the unicorn commonly says things about, um, I, she jumps all over. She even even just from her point of view mm-hmm. um saying something like you know many years later the unicorn would remember this or saying um that she wasn't sure exactly how much time was passing so this is a this is a st- stretch of a connection but you may be familiar with this media if you're listening to our podcast if you've read Watchmen mm. there's a chapter in Watchmen where Dr. Manhattan goes to Mars and he is sort of trapped in this like seeing things happening in the past mm-hmm. and in the present and in the future kind of all at the same time and that's what it reminds me of. Well and I think that that concept is echoed by other characters throughout the book as well yes. and it also plays into mortality versus immortality mm-hmm. and the way that human beings coexist in a world with magical and mythical creatures mm-hmm. um, and their own kind of self-hatred throughout the mm-hmm. entire thing yeah um, I mean there is not a human who is happy mm-hmm. in this book more than that they're they are all like deeply despondent and that's why like the unicorn doesn't like being around them when no. you're in her head which doesn't happen anymore for the last as soon book, as the unicorn becomes Lady Amalthea, you don't we get do not, we don't her get her point, point of view again. Yeah, yeah. Um, she is like, you know, she talks about how it hurts. It it hurts to be aware of the pains of the humans and mm-hmm. the fact that they will die. And then there's the fighting um, themes of either things are beautiful because they will die, mm-hmm. or things cannot be beautiful because they will die. Exactly. And I'm I'm st- strongly uh, align myself with the first. Mm-hmm. That's what I believe. And I feel like that's what the book is saying too. It's just I that agree. since the unicorn exists outside of that, because mm-hmm. she is a different kind of existence, 
it's not so for her. But, you know, since everyone reading the book is mortal, <laughs> it will I be mean, so for them. Please get in touch if you are a unicorn. Let us know you how you feel. This book. <laughs> I would love to know. Um, yeah, there's actually a line when the unicorn says, and this is after she's begun traveling with Schmendrick and Molly, mm-hmm. which she's resisted throughout the book. Yeah, she doesn't want to have really did not want to hang out with them passengers, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, not passengers, but you know, fellow travelers, because no one ever rides the unicorn. No, 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 that would be horrifying. Yeah, she says she would feel herself bending under the heaviness of knowing their names, and that's just mm-hmm. her thinking of like these future travels that are coming up and the time that she has to spend with these people, mm-hmm. and. I do kind of love, I mean, I, I see the unicorn as just being so annoyed by the banality of life. Yeah. Um, which because she's sense. not required to take part no, in it. No, she doesn't have to do any anything yeah. for anyone. She doesn't have to deal with this. And she had been living in the wood in this totally... Um, just like ensconced in her own being for forever as far as we're aware exactly yeah for for eternity which Mm -hmm. she will then go back and continue Mm -hmm. to do she just needed to know that there were others who had had her Mm -hmm. shared experience and i mean she very much succeeded like this book has technically an extremely happy ending it does nobody nobody uh, who's good even dies at the end of the book the prince comes back to life all the unicorns are freed but there's still this really heavy bittersweet melancholy even though it's an extremely happy ending when i was younger uh i really you know now i can recognize that it was the start of um, my depression but when I was younger I used to read you know this is really when I stopped reading fantasy for a time when I was a teenager like when I hit puberty and you know I, I was still reading still reading and then I got to like late teenager and I really didn't read very much for like five years you read manga yeah that's that's true but I'm thinking of that's so serialized though. Yeah, it's a little bit different. Mm-hmm. And there's some really good manga. Oh yeah, totally. for but, sure. But it's just different. It hurt me really um, intensely to read fantasy because mm-hmm. I was so low in my reality that yeah. to read about all of this magic and excitingness and just this sort of alternate realities where all of these amazing things were true it hurt too much to to countenance anymore so I had to just sort of put it away and I remember talking to you about it it's like escapism actually harming you instead of benefiting you because it just made me sadder because Mm -hmm. I felt that it I couldn't escape I was just looking through a window and I remember talking to you about it and you you said you were like but but that's the point of it so that Mm -hmm. you can access it through this way otherwise you can't yeah because it's not here but like this is the how you access it and I was just like no like it feels cruel um and I can't like in terms of this book I don't think I would have been able to handle it because it is so it's such a painful book but it kind of feels like the tie between fantasy and reality because Mm -hmm. It, it really fits into that place. Yeah, it does. It incorporates our real world, mythological worlds that we on Earth have created. Mm-hmm. I mean, it references Norse mythology, Roman mythology, mm-hmm. and Greek mythology, mm-hmm. all with different creatures and um, like gods and mm-hmm. characters. Yeah. Uh, but then they also mention um, actual historians, like they mention Pliny at one point. Mm. Um, and I do feel the sadness of the humans in the last unicorn's reality mm-hmm. who are so close to these magical creatures and they're all seeking greatness. Like mm-hmm. they're all trying to be heroes, yeah. if ranging from Captain Cully to Schmendrick. Like sad character. Oh my God. Yeah. We'll get to, <laughs> we'll get to Captain Cully and his band of men and Molly. Um, 
but yeah, they're all they're all desperately seeking this, and, and the at the same time, makes them so sad. Yeah, she makes them so well. Upset. She makes some people sad, and she makes others like incandescently happy. It's true, but I think that at most points with humans, where she's coming into contact with most of the animals, she meets are pretty into her. But then, like, they're, no, they are, they're, like, you know, happy and excited and, like, doing animal things. But she makes the humans really sad. Like, when Molly first meets her, she bursts into tears. But Molly's happy. And she feels that she's been looking for the unicorn her whole life. She says, why did you come to me now when I'm this? Like, where were you Mm -hmm. when I was young? Yeah, I guess, I guess I still just feel like the humans around the unicorn have sadness, like, they're happy that they're you know it's not like they would rather not she be around but it just causes them pain because she's something that they can never possess and that they can never be Mm -hmm. um and again and again people want to capture her even though they so throughout the book no one can see that she's a unicorn except Mm -hmm. for a few moments Mm -hmm. i would say women know that she's a unicorn i mean mommy fortuna and molly grew both do Mm -hmm. um and then schmendrick realizes it but schmendrick is a special case because he is at least with a new grasp of magic well Um, yeah and as you get further and further you realize like he becomes and schmendrick is also schmendrick is also immortal at for most mm-hmm. of the book so yeah. we don't know exactly how long he's been around for although he makes it seem like a long time because the first because time people talk about his teacher his as teacher, long long yeah, ago he makes yeah. it sound like it was an age ago. no it seems like he's been trying desperately to find his magic mm-hmm. for eons time. yeah and the reason that i keep going back to this like no she, she makes the humans sad like it hurts them it causes them pain and they can't even put their finger on why is because it really reminds me of that place that I spent a long time in um, where I was dealing with depression. And since I've just, you know, finally entered a period in my life where I deal with that, it kind of opens these worlds back up for me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everyone's dealing with... This is like how you're comfortable listening to uh, slow music again yes <laughs> I don't know if you want to talk about this. no no it's it's true it's the same thing I used to only be able to listen to like really crazy frenetic up-tempo upbeat music like electronic stuff yeah other you know because it would like bring me to life a little bit <laughs> um but you know everyone's dealing with their own thing some people depression some people a different thing but I just kind of feel like that's that's part of the mortalness that you know that sticks to people when they're around the unicorn that they mm-hmm. they really realize and it it hurts them yeah but she also gives them a an, like a glimpse access into something that they are better for being around the harpy is extremely frightening so that's a different sort of impact um mm-hmm. that's had but on she people is, but she's of the same cloth of the same material Mm -hmm. as the unicorn Mm -hmm. and that's why mommy fortuna wants them so and she's so proud of herself Mm -hmm. for capturing them even Mm -hmm. though she did it in the most lazy shameful way just which really ties into everything that we're already saying like she Mm -hmm. just wanted it so badly but she wasn't able to just like you know hope for a glimpse she wanted to hold them in her hand in whatever mm-hmm. way she could and it killed her and she knew it was going, she to, knew kill it was her. going to kill her there's all this weird foreshadowing yeah. where she is like mentally communicating with the harpy and knowing mm-hmm. that the harpy Will and be she her death. are connected yeah. and that the, she's going to be dead by yeah. its hands um yeah and i mean that's also the part of the book where the most uh real world mythologies are at play because there's mm-hmm. so many references yeah. um, I mean they yeah. talk about like Jason and the Argonauts mm-hmm. related to um, capturing the harpy yeah a lot of classical mythology yeah. comes in um, which is interesting to have right at the start of the book before you even have an idea of what this world's mythology is and you or know how I it works. still it's don't really have a firm grasp on the this particular world or its mm-hmm. borders but that feels okay 
given this book. I think it is appropriate. I don't think the book is, I don't think Peter Spiegel is concerned with um, world building. Right. I like think the other books we've all read. about the unicorn. Yeah. I mean, she is the hero of the story, even mm-hmm. when she isn't herself. Um, we didn't mention this in the summary, but she is transformed into a human woman mm-hmm. um, about halfway through the book. She's a human for a, a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, by Schmendrick in an attempt to distract the Red Bull, who's mm-hmm. trying to herd her into the ocean with mm-hmm. the other unicorns. Yeah, um, And it's one of those moments where Schmendrick doesn't have control over what he's doing, but power flows through him, mm-hmm. and it leads to this transformation. Mm-hmm. And that part of the book was the most upsetting to me um, because it just felt so much like a physical or sexual assault Um, because the unicorn is horrified and her body has been manipulated away from her um, and yeah she's been robbed of her I mean not just her body but her identity she's no Mm -hmm. longer immortal yeah Um, and then as her time as a human being continues she loses parts of herself Mm -hmm. she like forgets that she was ever a unicorn she was a unicorn and in the end has to be changed back in order to even um, escape that entire plight. I and mean, she they was spent so a lot changed. of time trapped, essentially, in King Hagrid's castle. Technically, mm-hmm. the unicorn is Lady Amalthea, mm-hmm. is what they call her, yeah. and she can. The king says she can come and go as she pleases, but by the time he figures out she's a unicorn, there's no escape. Mm-hmm. And there's nowhere for her to go because she doesn't have... This is the end of her quest. I mean, she's yeah. there and she needs to save the other unicorns. And she's so profoundly changed that by the time that Schmendrick is ready and able to change her back, she begs him not to, mm-hmm. saying, like, no, I'll just go away with the prince. Like, Yeah, she thinks she's in love. Well, she w- was in love with Prince be- Lear, in even her though human. she would never allow herself to be touched. Mm-hmm. Um, but she, even when she does get turned back, there's a line that says... You know, there's sadness over um, Lady Amalthea's being discarded, mm-hmm. like the part of her that loved the prince. Yeah. So, because Lady Amalthea is like a a cruel trick, she's not mm. she's not real. No, and there's so much concern with one's true essence throughout the book that being mm-hmm. that like halfway being, mm-hmm. I think, is especially profound and disturbing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So the other moment when humans are adjacent to something that is just stronger and more beautiful than them and they flip out (laughs) is when Schmendrick is trying to do tricks for Captain Cully and Jack Jingle and their thief crew and he manages accidentally to create these gigantic entities that he, are spirits. It's, it's another time, like when he changes her into mm-hmm. a, a woman. Yeah, it's when it flows through it, him. He doesn't choose to. No, just he's just a it. vessel. Yeah. And the entities are Robin Hood and his Merry Men um, and Lady Marion and all these figures who Captain Collie is so desperate to be like to the point where he's actually been spreading songs and tales about himself yeah or attempting to that he wrote and he wrote and then he made up um he's yeah so desperate to know what Schmendrick has heard about him and he latches on to Schmendrick and he's like you are this person that's come in disguise (laughs) to like this lore gatherer yeah and then he gets to the point where he's accusing Schmendrick of lying for pretending to be this person and Schmendrick he, he actually no he it. says he, he isn't yeah. that like bard their historian bard like yeah. it's Cully very is funny a sad sack he just does the most ridiculous things he he's a yeah a desperate man mm-hmm. like many other people in this book but when robin hood and his group come through the clearing and, they're, they're and walk through the forest. Like yeah, instances. they're enormous. Yeah. So it's not just knowing that these are these impossible and heroic figures. They're mm-hmm. also massive. Yeah. 
Um, and everyone in Captain Cully's band loses their minds mm -hmm. and runs after Robin Hood, begging him to take them yeah. so that they can be part of a real band of heroic thieves. Because they're not heroic. They don't do no. anything heroic. No, they... they it seems like they have some kind of contract with the mayor of the neighboring town by which they just rob on the highways and bring and the money to give the him mayor. Money and then he doesn't persecute them. Right. But that that instance of them just going into a frenzy and running after Robin Hood into mm -hmm. the forest um, is, I think, a pivotal point in the book mm -hmm. whereby we're seeing that humans don't, they don't want to be these real figures like they they are so desperately craving that that storybook mm -hmm. fantasy yeah. I mean I think that they're we were talking about escapism earlier and I think that everyone all the humans in this book are just kind of struggling um, with that line of mm -hmm. reality versus fantasy and yeah. they want to be within the fantasy but because there's magic in the world, it's clear that they don't have it. It's mm -hmm. different from yeah. something like our world where, okay, there's not magic. We may have like superstitions and magical ways of thinking, but they're faced with that reality every time they come into contact with one of these beings and they can never, yeah, they can never be it. So speaking of Captain Cully, I mean, 30, 32 minutes in, let's move to something a little lighter. Um, I will say that I, I, you know, maybe it was slightly before Captain Cully's band, but it was really nice to have an introduction of humor into the yes, story. Yes, yeah. Because um, the first few chapters are pretty grim, but this book is a really funny book. It felt very Terry Pratchett to me at different points, and Captain Cully and his group, uh, yeah, kind of perfectly exemplified that. Yeah, because they are these, like, grotesque caricatures mm -hmm. of what you would expect to find in this kind of story. Yeah. Um, and they're so self-obsessed and self-important, mm -hmm. uh, but also deeply <laughs> depressing. Mm -hmm. But bringing us to one of our segments, there was a moment with Captain Cully that made me stop and say, wait, did that just happen? And <laughs> I know what you're going to say, because I was going to bring it up. <laughs> okay, so pretend food. <laughs> we start it right now. You know where I'm going with yes. this. When Schmendrick, when he first arrives, Captain Cully offers him a taco. He says, like, you must, you're hungry. Do you want anything to eat? Like, have this watery soup. A taco? <laughs> a taco. <laughs> I was so confused. So, because uh, this, like many fantasy books, has the feeling of being in a medieval society. European medieval. European like, medieval. Um, and the other mentions of food specifically in the book are, like, stuff that they find on the road. I mean, Schmendrick eats dogs at one point. Yeah, like, like I should not... say, like, very Anglo-white mm -hmm. European. Yeah. Like, it's like just... turnips, gruel, mm -hmm. wine. Yeah. Uh, and then a taco makes an appearance. Yeah. Although it, Schmendrick doesn't seem to accept the taco. Because no, he's <laughs> like, no, I don't want that taco. It's a gross taco. But No more discussion. What? It really threw me. I was, yeah. It's funny because when I was doing research, I was just reading a little about the movie because I haven't seen it in a very long time. Did they give him a taco in the movie? <laughs> well, someone like in Like a picturesque little taco? I didn't see a picture, but someone in a review of the movie said, like, I was a little pulled out of the narrative when someone mentioned a taco. Like, that seemed kind of strange. I was like, no, dude, that is in the book. That is in the book. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and other than that taco, there isn't a lot of food in this book. There's it's a lot not, of, like... Sad, sad soup. Oh my god, yeah. I Molly love making soup. the soup. Yeah. I we are soup people. Yeah, we are. We're raised on good I've been, soups. I mean, since it got cold, I've been making a soup every weekend. <laughs> I have it for lunch every day. And nothing when better. He, when he says to Molly, we have another visitor, put more water in the soup. <laughs> I just I read that line three times and just got sadder and sadder. Yeah. And the visual of Molly in that little kitchen just chopping these furry vegetables. Um. I think that's the most time that's devoted to food is when they talk about when mm -hmm. this exquisite detail that goes into just describing the ruinedness of these yeah, vegetables. I know. <laughs> yeah. And we only get that long scene because Molly's talking to the cat. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. 
The which, cat who is typically cattish. Oh, yeah. I mean, fantasy classic fantasy yeah. cat. Shows up, is really annoying, delivers some crucial information to drive the plot forward, and then just fades off. Yeah. yeah. In a very frustrating way. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, but I did. I mean, I made a note when the cat showed up. I was like, here's our cat. Mm -hmm. I know we're reading a yeah. classic fantasy book. Um, so, well, speaking of this as a classic, uh, something that I... I didn't put together for myself, but I read that Peter S. Beagle said at like a screening of the movie that before he wrote this, he had only encountered unicorns being depicted as male, and he wanted to create a like incredibly female, not feminine necessarily, but very female unicorn. And I think that really ties into the unicorn's entire journey. She prevails and she is, like I said, the hero of the story. There are, mm -hmm. you know, men that help along the way, but no one can ever take her quest from her mm -hmm. and she's the only one who can complete it. Yeah. I mean, badass lady meter, very high. Uh, well, transcendently high it's not, because yeah, she she's, is transcendent. She's not a human yeah. um, and she is, you know, just all knowing, mm -hmm. um, but also just so over the human crap that she has put up with. Yeah. Um, and Molly Grew is a really interesting character too she says that when she was young she ran away from home we don't know what her life was very like before that though. yeah when she was very young and wound up with Captain Cully but she leaves him as soon as she sees something that represents what she's always been searching she for respect him or seems and like she, she just, just kind of got feel, stuck there yeah like tied to him I think yeah. and in the end she gets to go out adventuring with Schmendrick yeah. mm -hmm. um and mm -hmm. it feels very hopeful and exciting the place that they're in at the end of the book mm -hmm. um and I really liked that mm -hmm. Prince Lear is the one who has to break the curse that's on the town Hagsgate, Hagsgate. which is the yeah. town that is adjacent to King Haggard's castle, mm -hmm. the king who controls or who is connected to the Red Bull mm -hmm. and who has imprisoned the unicorns. Yeah. And Lear has spent his life just kind of doing whatever. Mm -hmm. When Lady Amalthea shows up, he becomes a hero because he's trying to impress her. Mm -hmm. um, he's not. At first, he's not, he doesn't really care about what he's doing, but then he does say that he enjoys it. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I can't tell if that's just because he likes feeling uh, like a big shot or if he's Prince actually, Lear? Mm -hmm. or no, if he's actually I wanting think that to he help. He does have goodness in him from the get go. Yeah, I think so too. It's hard because he's so wishy washy, um, at least at first, but when he becomes king, he does gain fortitude and certainty. Mm -hmm. And once Schmendrick tells him, you know, you need to, okay, it's time to get over this mm -hmm. crush because you have a kingdom to govern mm -hmm. that has been a wasteland yeah. for many, like many these years. People need you. Um, I mean, he, I thought that he that picks was. up and he, he's ready to go in. I thought it was actually a pretty incredible political statement mm -hmm. um, because the way fantasy books typically approach like a change in regime it's you know just okay great like long live the new wonderful king mm -hmm. um, everything's just a joyous happy celebration well and I wrote the line down uh, because I loved it um, so Schmendrick is talking to Prince Lear when they're first venturing out after the castle has fallen into the sea. Mm -hmm. um, There's nothing there. It, it, the cliff is bare. Yeah, yeah completely bare. Um, except for the men who have been working in the castle who are just young. like, yay! They're younger the than Prince broken. <laughs> it's amazing that they're all just guys. there like, awesome. <laughs> yeah, because I, I always liked them because they were nice to Molly and they yeah. were like, great and soup, like, Molly. <laughs> And they wouldn't hurt Schmendrick. No. They were like, yeah. it said they were dodging around each other and apologizing. Yeah, and when the, when like the, the big fight scene yeah. comes to a head and uh -huh. like the skull is just screaming, that I love that moment. The skull it's, is great. The skull is incredible. Yeah, I really liked the skull. I have skull. a skull line written down too. But okay, the political line that I loved was Schmendrick telling Prince Lear, "You are the king of a wasted land where there has never been any king but fear." Your true task has just begun, and you may not know in your life if you have succeeded in it, but only if you fail. 
which is a mindset that I think people forget a lot. Uh, I don't know if someone will be listening to this in the future, but we're in a very uncertain political time in our own nation right now. Um, and I think Talk there's about regime change. Yeah. Um, and I think that there's so much focus on, you know, were, were they like, were they a good president or will they be a good president? But people don't think about things in longer like wider reaching terms and it is different for a king where you know this is his domain until he dies yeah. but that that is he won't know if he succeeds but only if he fails i mean he can't know if he's brought the kingdom to like its true potential and to its prosperity right it's very difficult to measure the um absence of failure or mm -hmm. it's it's difficult to um weigh a negative mm -hmm. like if you do good you know, it means that bad things have not happened, and that's right. very difficult to quantify. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, but I just love that for the ending of the humans part of the story, at least. Mm -hmm. um, it is interesting to think about, like, how the other neighboring kingdoms might be affected, because mm -hmm. it doesn't feel like there's much good going on in any of the towns that they... It's, very, it's a very feudal society. Mm -hmm. Things are, you know, where we th what they call kings... Uh, obviously are more like lords in a feudal, like there are many of them, sure, but they're very spread out and they just r rule over their own fiefdoms, mm -hmm. so to speak, mm -hmm. um, because there is so much space. But this is a, you know, even comparatively, it seems like a very wretched fiefdom. Yeah. <laughs> well, and something I forgot to mention when we were talking about Lear becoming capable is that the unicorn's not only her own hero, she's the hero of Hagsgate because she makes Prince mm -hmm. Lear, even without doing anything, mm -hmm. like with just ignoring him and not giving in to his initial advances, mm -hmm. makes him into a hero. Yeah. She causes him to go on these quests that teach him how to be the king he needs to be mm -hmm. and how to understand the surrounding struggles and what the people are going through whether it's you know a dragon or something like famine and she's not really trying to do anything other than you know save her people but she just has these effects on other people like when the the unicorns themselves when they leave they bring the land back to life because they have passed there mm -hmm. they just have like this power that influences things in certain ways you know the effects of which are ultimately good well, and it's interesting because the unicorns don't, um, they aren't active forces. Like, they are just trying to exist. Mm -hmm. But everything that they pass, whether it's, you know, flora or fauna, mm -hmm. is revitalized by their presence. Yeah. And it is probably the very lack of unicorns that led to the land becoming so wasted mm -hmm. yeah. um, in the That's first good. place. Mm -hmm. uh, and I do, I mean, the visual of the unicorns fighting in the waves as they mm -hmm. crash on the water is so stunning and it feels so it feels so frightening that they're trapped mm -hmm. and they're trying again and again to break free mm -hmm. like rushing yeah. every wave onto the beach mm -hmm. but the red bull keeps them there with force of will mm -hmm. And I'll also say that our edition of the book has really cool illustrations yeah, the pictures are cool. by little, Mel Grant. They come a little too soon, though. Who spaced these? <laughs> yeah. Did you notice? Yeah, that I did notice the that. They're on the wrong pages. Away. You see it, and then it's like, oh my God, that that happened when she got turned into a human. Yep. You see yeah, it, I just found, I think, the worst, on, yeah, the, the most spoilery page. picture of the Red Bull Look just at you, publisher steaming of this edition. Um, in anger and standing menacingly over a small white naked woman mm -hmm. um, who is Lady Amalthea after the unicorn has been right. transformed. And then on the next page, if you have mm -hmm. to hear that nice page. To <laughs> get, get it, get it. Okay, that's enough. <laughs> um, no, I, I love sporadically illustrated fantasy books um, and yeah. these like heavy ink drawings mm -hmm. are my They're jam. They were incredible, yeah. So our edition is the 1991 release by Rock Fantasy. Um, we'll, like Madeline said, we'll the cover up on Twitter, yeah, which is at Dragon Babies Pod. If you want to check it out, I think we should do our young adult discussion. Mm -hmm. um, we need to define 
where this book falls in terms of age appropriateness. Um, I think this is a little bit different for this book because I don't think anywhere that this is classified as a young adult book. Um, I actually looked at, when I was doing a little research, um, there are these weird websites where concerned mothers just rate different books and say how appropriate they think they are that's, for that's different really age groups. Because I remember being uh, young and reading a book and there would be like a sexy part or something oh and I'd be like, ha, I got this out of the school library. They didn't <laughs> I read did it. it. I found it. I they found don't it. even know. <laughs> this sex. No, I read so many inappropriate books yeah. as a child. I mean, I did a book report in fifth grade on Many Waters by Madeline Langle, which oh, has... I remember reading that book when I was young, too. Yeah. It has and not only a lot of sex, it has a very graphic birth scene. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I remember putting my vocabulary list together, which was part of, it was this like months long project where we uh-huh. uh, approached the book from many different, uh, just with many different little assignments. Mm-hmm. We had to create a vocabulary list and my words were like, awful, O-F-F-A-L. <laughs> that was, I had awful in there. Um, oh, that's amazing. I had something else that was related to like human viscera. I can't remember what it was. And my teacher put a concerned note on it. It was like, I didn't, I've never read this book. Last, <laughs> last point about this book, and we want to do it um, in the future, right? Many Waters? Yes. Um, I want to do, uh, I want to do A Wind in the Door first okay. before doing Metal and Langle. And, and that I think is a more fantasy um, oriented or sci-fi rather book. <laughs> I was just going to say it's earlier in the Murray's lives. Um, Sandy and Dennis are the focus of many waters who don't have another book that really talks about them. We're going, They're kind of ignored. I, I only wanted to say one more thing about this book. But Madeline Langle, I could talk <laughs> I know, forever. I okay, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was so young when I read this book. Like, I went back. I found it, I think, when my mom moved or something. And I looked at the cover of the one we have. And there's these two... Two, like, like tan, muscular... Teenagers. They're like children. They are very no, young. No, no. Well, this is undermining everything about what I was going to say. So now Okay, I go ahead. No, 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 no. Tell me. Well, I want to see a picture now. Wait, tell me what you're gonna say. I I remember. Just a yellow square. Just dealing with there is, the internet is. right That's now. The, they look like teenagers. Oh, I guess, yeah, they are pretty. They're like cherubic teenagers, though. I just I remember mean, looking at it when I was 25 and being like, oh, my God, I was so young when I read this book that I thought. Do you have it? These kids were like hottie McHotsters. <laughs> <laughs> they look like um, members of a boy band. Yeah. I mean, they have so really pretty less, facial features. Less and, like, indicative of my age because they're very like, you know, someone who's a child from mm-hmm. 10 to 17 could find them attractive. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, oh, that's this is from a Toast article. Ugh, R.I.P. the Toast. And Mallory just deleted all her tweets. Okay. Mallory! Now I'm really going off on a tangent. <laughs> Mallory Ortberg, why? Oh, my God. Yeah, I, I need her right now, and she's not there. Anyway, she does Dear Prudence. I know now, she's still Dear doing Dear Prudence. If you would yeah. like to shout out to Dear Prudence on Slate, their weekly advice column. Um, it's the most consistent writing that Mallory Orberg is doing right now, and she's incredible. So she's really great. Check it out if you like horrifying stories about people's lives. She deals with them well. <laughs> Truly horrifying. Um, okay, what were we talking about before we went off on the many waters? Young adultness. Okay. I, one of those adult or parent, mom, concerned mom websites where they're rating books. Back on track. <laughs> I saw one that said that this was 18 and up, what? which seems excessive. Um, That's I do, nonsense. I do understand now that, now that I'm a ripe old age of 29, I think I know a little something about mortality. You're old and wise. <laughs> I do think there are, that the heavier concepts related to the passing of time and the fear of your own transience on this earth um, are only felt by someone who has spent a few no, decades exactly. on our planet. Things like this that are not meant for children 
children will glide right over. They right. will but not that's the understand thing. them. They don't they absorb, absorb them. them. And on just the level of a, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. No, I went like that because we said absorb at almost the exact same time. <laughs> I know. One day this podcast will just be us speaking in unison the same as, our, words. as our sister <laughs> brains collide. Meep, meep. That's what happens with siblings, yeah. <laughs> sisters especially. Power of witchy ladies. Yeah. Um, I don't even remember. <laughs> the concerned moms, Grace. No, I know. But that's the thing. It can be read by a young adult or a child and be seen as just a very dark fantasy story because it has all the right components for a regular fairy tale. Um, and it is self-referential in the way some of the other books we've read have been where it's like mocking the standard fairy tale structure mm -hmm. um like at the end of the book when schmendrick is trying to comfort prince lear because he's concerned that the unicorn will forget him he says she'll remember you when men are fairy tales and books written by rabbits yeah, <laughs> which is a wonderful really vision yeah. for our post-apocalyptic huh? future yeah. um well wait isn't yeah. isn't the concept of moms trying to prevent their children from reading books like the last unicorn completely outdated don't they all have ipads now i mean aren't they all looking at porn when they're <laughs> 11 years old like i do think that it's an attempt to create a world that no longer exists yeah. maybe and maybe this was an old page like i, okay. I don't know i mean this was it like teal and the, there was like <laughs> no but there, there are domains like whole sites that are like I can't remember what they're called, but it's like parental suggestions or something like that. Because I think some of them, of the, I think some of them are Christian. Okay. Yeah. Because um, with all of the, you know, the world, you can access the world from the time you are. My, our baby sister has an iPad. She is yeah, almost. But two. all she can do on it is like press circles. Right, but you have to imagine that. As and by press soon, circles, I mean tap circles on the screen. She really likes that iPad. I'm not calling buttons circles. I played some Adventure <laughs> Time for her on it once, and she was just like, kind of like she made a, some faces. I didn't. She wasn't ready for Adventure Time. Yet. She will be though. She <laughs> will be. <laughs> Think of what she's going to be able to access, mm -hmm. and how soon she's going to be able to access it. Mm -hmm. I'm a firm believer that as soon as you have mastered the ability to read novels, you should start reading all kinds of fantasy novels. Like, yeah, when you're a child, you like. there's definitely reasons for parents to keep you away from graphic, sexual, or mm -hmm. violence. Yeah, something that's going to be themes. traumatic. Right, exactly. Yeah. But even like, you know, the sexy parts and the books that I was reading, those were not harming me. Those were actually good because they mm -hmm. were in, like they were so minimal. It's establishing sex is healthy and normal too. Right. I mean, and it was sort of I'm like a really not... gentle entry into that right. consciousness. Yeah. Whereas when you have a total lack of anything, quote unquote, adult in your life, it is difficult and frightening mm -hmm. when you're suddenly thrust into because this new time of your life yeah because the older you get the more just straight up graphic every all the depictions right. will be and that's dangerous to go from nothing to that because then you have no well and i think it's something that's specific to american society too where we want to be very very prudish yeah until... infantilize our children yeah. and then all of a sudden push everything on them just once toss once them into that cesspool of adultness a, you know randomly determined age like 17 or 18 like mm -hmm. oh you're ready for all this and yeah. that's not how it works for anyone like right. we're all individuals and, and i don't i don't mean to say that like rah, sex and violence it's a you know it's filthy i really don't think you're saying that. but no when i say like toss them into the cesspool like there's <laughs> oh yeah. yeah there's like many many amazing incredible things in there but if you don't know how to tell what from what it's all just gonna freak you out then you're just you know accidentally <laughs> looking over your dad's shoulder while he watches a movie on tv in the daytime and you see this monster who's trapped a woman in a bathroom and then kills her is my experience. What movie was it? I, to this day, do not know. It really scarred me. I was seven. Oh, no. It's okay. <laughs> Don't worry. 
Don't be sad. Madeline said. <laughs> Anyways, children, not young, young children, but young adults should read this book. This book is amazing. I, sh- I think I should have read it when I was young. You know, I, I had like stuff going on, which prevented me from continuing my love of fantasy until I had dealt with it. But like, I think young adults should read this book. I agree. I think of something that we haven't even mentioned yet, except uh, in that I keep referencing that I just wrote down so many lines that I wanted to read, is that the writing is unbelievably good. It's poetry. Um, Every sentence is perfect. There's nothing unnecessary and there's Mm -hmm. nothing missing. And I'm just really, really impressed by Peter S. Spiegel's prose. I'm, yeah, I'm shocked by how beautiful the writing is. Like, it was delicious. Mm-hmm. It was a savory book. This is something I wanted to lead the podcast with, but we were so excited to talk about so many other things. The dedication of this book is to two people who have their own unicorn sightings. And I just wanted to ask if you have... Yeah, it, it was a wild unicorn in the Maine woods and one or two in Los Angeles. I can't tell mm. if these are serious yeah. dedications or not, but mm. I wanted to ask if you have ever, or if you do now, believe in unicorns. Evelyn oh, <laughs> just went to a faraway place. That's such a, like... It's okay, it's a really hard question. You don't have to answer if no, you don't want to. I, th- I can go first if you want. No, I would say... For what this book has presented and the feelings that it evokes, yes. And that's all I would like to say. No, that's great. I love that answer. Thank you. Um, I think I've always struggled with the unicorn as a concept, um, especially when I was younger, because I, as we mentioned in our last episode, all about dragons, obsessed with dragons. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was young, I really rejected femininity and beauty, and it made me very uncomfortable. And it wasn't. She was something... so bummed when her boobs came in. Oh my god! <laughs> I still am not the biggest fan, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's it's not been something I would that it, I was really comfortable with. And with you, it wasn't coming from a place of wanting to be a man. No, it was just it you was were because, rejecting. Yeah. Your, misogyny your femaleness mm-hmm. yeah because I feel like you realize what it was boxing you into yeah I did from a young age feel like I was very restricted in mm-hmm. the things that I would be able to do or the person I would be able to be mm-hmm. um, which is strange because our parents were very gender neutral I've always considered that they were quite good at that they, oh yeah Patrick had a, a, a nice doll just like our American girl dolls mm-hmm. and we had remote control race Legos cars. and cars yeah we all played with Legos together yeah, and, and we, Barbies we together we sports my outdoors off, I mean well we played sports that we invented we yeah, um, to this day none of us are fans of organized sports you know what I don't fine. know if there's a single sport that I actually know how to play fully like if you put me on a field and a team I would kind of panic <laughs> I know how to play volleyball. Kickball. I can play kickball. That's a sport. Um, but unicorns were so soft and pretty, and the fact that they were attracted to, not, uh, not physically attracted to, but drawn to virgins, mm-hmm. um, I didn't like the sexualizing of that. Yeah. Uh, that made me really uncomfortable. Um, but it's it's kind of the opposite of sexualization. Like, it's tying it to sexualness. But those, no, but those women are valuable because they are virginal. But that's a, a purity thing. No, you're right. It is, yeah. It's still, it's still sexualizing them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, their sexuality is their goodness. Their, yeah, their purity yeah. because yeah. they haven't had sex. But yeah. you're right. It says some weird things about. Yeah. Yeah. And that always made me really uncomfortable. And I guess all this is coming together to say, like, I, I mean, I haven't ever believed in unicorns. Um, and I think that some of it does stem from rejecting those like stereotypical unicorn concepts. Mm-hmm. I loved the unicorn in this book. and To me, it didn't recall any of the like Lisa Frank no. style, My Little Pony oh, type unicorns yeah. that I've always thought of before if someone said the word unicorn. Right. And the, the fact that this unicorn's beauty can't even be conceived by most 
people like mm-hmm. they can't and see they, her they, they so can't describe it anymore her beauty is sight. is for herself mm-hmm. i mean which is awesome yeah like she can't be grace just gave a little thumbs up, thumbs up. she awesome. can't be objectified yeah even though she's the most beautiful thing there is that's why people who aren't willing to see her like that see her as just like a pretty horse right they like a beautiful even, yeah. white horse mm-hmm. but but it's a horse yeah and they're not like oh god that horse I mean they are like oh give me that horse like I'm gonna steal your horse from you (laughs) yeah but it's more you know practical yeah than transcendental yes oh I do want to say that today is the 34th anniversary of the last unicorn films released in theaters which I have not seen so I will be joining anyone else watching it not today but sometime soon (laughs) Someday I will watch this Sometimes movie. Soon. Maybe, <laughs> um, yeah. I haven't seen the movie in a very long time. It is, it has become a cult classic um, because it's very unique. Uh, it was made by Rankin Bass, that company that did the Christmas, um, a, a, like a bunch of famous Christmas movies. They did Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, um, Jack Frost, like all of, I'm pretty sure that all of the the best known Christmas movies. Did you know that Peter S. Beagle helped write the the animated Lord of the Rings? No, I know. That's actually something I was going to say because Rankin Bass also animated The Hobbit and Uh, um, the... Lord of the Rings, the TV movie that was made. And they only made one. There were supposed to be yeah. two of them. So Rink and Mass, like produced the movie, but it was animated by a an animation studio that was called Topcraft. And shortly after this film, Topcraft went bankrupt and a few people bought it and turned it into Studio Ghibli. So it's actually the foundation of Studio Ghibli, which is awesome. That's crazy. <laughs> the so the movie uh, has Christopher Lee in it as King Haggard, which oh, is incredible. Man. And for oh, that I reason alone, I really, really, really want to revisit it. And Peter S. Beagle said, um, "I think this was a, I think this was a piece that he wrote after Christopher Lee passed away, saying that he was the um, the most literate." actor he had ever met or like the most literate person he had ever met or something um like just incredibly intelligent and well-read and knowledgeable um which is how i view chris really as well yeah, so. yeah. um and it's very trippy uh it frightened a lot of children i know that when I saw it as a kid, I was like, whoa, at <laughs> some things, but I could handle it. I mean, we grew up on, like, some weird stuff, movie-wise. So, I mean, I feel like if you're comfortable with all of Jim Henson's creations, like, you're ready for some weird animation. <laughs> and, yeah, like, <laughs> the, ho- the scary, Hobbit. you guys. <laughs> no, I'm, I mean, I'm thinking of, like, like Labyrinth and, like, Dark oh, Crystal type okay, stuff. Yeah, Labyrinth yeah. is pretty frightening for a child. I don't know, for a child when I was a child. Right, yeah. I don't know what kids are accustomed to today. Yeah, just oh, dropping their iPhone. I was just about to say maybe if someone takes their tech away, (laughs) we're just being ageist and mean now. (laughs) Some grumpy old jerks. Um, But I know there's one scene in particular that a lot of people were talking about when I was doing research, um, which is when Schmendrick, when the tree falls in love with Schmendrick while he's tied around it yes. um, in the movie the tree like sprouts gigantic breasts <gasps> and is very like sexual with Schmendrick um, and is like rubbing its boobs on him oh. <laughs> I'm so upset now I saw a still from it and was like Wow, that is different. That's not because what I Because in the book, it's very... Uh, it's funny. It's played Transcendent for, and weird and yeah, funny. And it's yeah. just like played for laughs. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I loved that, that the tree fell in love yeah, with him. It, it makes so much sense because he's just firing magic off like while yeah. rubbing around on a tree. Uh-huh. like, And then the tree tries to kill him so that no one else can... <laughs> The tree tree goes through a lot of emotions really fast. The tree got really warped. (laughs) Yeah, it did. Oh, okay. So do you have any 
closing uh, thoughts or anything else you wanted to discuss? Just an advisement that if you meet a gang of Robin Hood wannabes in the woods, make sure to get some tacos from them. <laughs> I love that I've that's your takeaway from <laughs> this gorgeous book on death and the essence of being tacos. <laughs> no, I mean, like, I this book was really intense for me to read mm -hmm. um, nice. and I was happy that I was in a place where I could get good things from it but if you are an adult and are going to read this book um, like it's been a rough week uh, it's been a really rough week and rough couple of weeks yeah I was I was happy to have this escape um, but it also made me like feel very very sad um but but I also you know would do not regret having read it so take that for what it's worth yeah I think that that's a really good final statement because I felt the same way I just kept I mean the last couple of weeks my brain has just been like end times yeah. end times mm -hmm. end times and um it was nice to live in a different a different reality that is still a very real feeling one mm -hmm. um, that's also going through some of the same bad stuff transitions so there's one song that isn't related to this book um, it is written by Shel Silverstein it's called the unicorn song I don't know if you remember it from I think it's in Where the Sidewalk Ends, um, mm. but Shel Silverstein also recorded his own versions of some of the children's songs that he wrote. Okay. And do you not remember this at all, that mom used to sing us this song? It's not yet ringing a bell. Okay, so to take us out, this is the Unicorn Song by Shel Silverstein. Well, a long time ago, when the earth was green, and there was more kind of animals than you've ever seen and they run around free while the world was being born and the loveliest of all was the unicorn there was green alligators and long neck geese there was humpback camels and there was chimpanzees there was cats and rats and elephants, but sure as you're born, the loveliest of all was the unicorn. Well, now God seen some sinning, and it caused him pain. He says, stand back, I'm gonna make it rain. Says, hey, Brother Noah, I'll tell you what to do. Go and build me a floating zoo and you take two alligators a couple of geese you take two humpy backy camels and two chimpanzees you take two cats and rats and elephants but sure as you're born Noah don't you forget my unicorn well then Noah was there and answered the calling and he finished of the ark just as the rain started falling he marched in the animals two by two and called out as they went through hey lord i got you two alligators a couple of geese i got you humpback camels and two chimpanzees i got you cats and rats and elephants but lord i'm so forlorn cause i just don't see no unicorn well noah looked out through the driving rain the unicorns was hiding playing silly games they were kicking and splashing while the rain was pouring oh them silly unicorn yeah two alligators a couple of geese two humps back camels and through chimpanzees Noah cried close the door cause the rain is pouring and we just can't wait for no unicorn 
And the axe started moving, and it drifted with the tide. And the unicorns looked up from the rock and cried. And the water come up and sort of floated them away. That's why you've never seen a unicorn to this day. You'll see lots of alligators and a whole mess of geese. You'll see plenty humpback camels, lots of chimpanzees. You'll see cats and rats and elephants, but sure as you're born, you're never gonna see no Dragon Babies, you can find us online at dragonbabiespodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at dragonbabiespod. That's the first syllable of podcast. The music in this podcast is Pippin the Hunchback by Kevin McLeod. It's licensed under the Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license, and you can find his music at incompetech.com.